In this hour, a tribute to the late, great Harry Belafonte, who passed away this week at the age of 96. To be clear, the death of Mr. B is a signal loss to be mourned, but it is also an unmatched legacy of art and advocacy to be celebrated. And so we will celebrate his life and legacy in this hour. Harry Belafonte, I am humbled and honored to say, was my abiding friend, my brother beloved, and so much more. Over the years, we sat for any number of conversations on radio, television, and in front of live audiences in this country and indeed around the globe. I was up late last night listening to uh, seminal recordings and broadcasts of our many conversations over decades, and I mean that literally. We talked, as you will hear in a moment, over decades. What you're about to hear, I believe, is going to make you laugh, make you smile, make you think, make you cringe, make you think about your own life, your own legacy, your own dance with mortality someday, but mostly make you grateful for the life of Harry Belafonte. All that said, here now, Harry Belafonte in his own words. Belafonte is a cultural icon whose groundbreaking albums have solidified his place in music history. Last week, an anthology of his music was released called The Legacy of Harry Belafonte, When Colors Come Together. Mr. B was the first artist of any race or gender to sell one million records with his hit album, Calypso. He has won three Grammy Awards, including a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, an Emmy, and a Tony. In 2014, he received an honorary Oscar, making him one of an elite group of performers who have achieved EGOT status, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. But he's also known for his longtime and passionate commitment to civil and human rights issues. During his first appearance on this program back in 2004, I asked the then 76-year-old about his continued commitment to advocacy and to coming to this nation as the son of immigrants. How have you been, man? Not bad. Yeah. A little, a little overly active, I think. But uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's, it's really doing things that I have great interest in. Mm -hmm. and, I got, and I feel a great sense of urgency about the time in which we live. Mm -hmm. And I figured that by the time I'd reached the three-quarter of a century mark, I'd have long since either been dead and gone or mm -hmm. lying on a beach somewhere, uh, just uh, being nostalgic. But in fact, there is just so much to be done that I find that uh, such luxuries are not affordable. We've talked any number of times over the years, but I've never had a chance, uh, at least I didn't take the chance, I should say, to ask you how your coming to this nation as the son of immigrants shapes or shades your worldview and your opinion of what America is or what she ought to be. How much of that is determined uh, or is uh, part and parcel of your having come to this country as the son of immigrants? A great deal of it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
especially since I've come to know through Nelson Mandela and through Martin Luther King and Eleanor Roosevelt and others who are in my life, that we are not an isolated island. The United States of America is part of a planet, and everything that happens on this planet has serious ramifications to our own vital interests as well as our external interests. Mm -hmm. uh, as an immigrant, I'm no different than most first-generation-born Americans who know life through the eyes and, the and through the prisms of their immigrant experience, whether it were the Jews or the Irish who came here during the Irish Rebellion and the potato uh, famine, whether it were Russians that came here. Whoever has come to this country brings with them a history and a story about why America means not only so much to us, but why you would like to shape America to be the promise that we were told America holds mm -hmm. for all of us. Mr. B's close and abiding friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was at the forefront of a special week of shows in 2008 from Memphis, commemorating the 40th anniversary of King's death. During this next clip, he shared a rare glimpse of King's humor with a story about that amazing week in February 1968 when Johnny Carson handed the Tonight Show over to Mr. B. I also asked him to take me back to when, where, and how he first met Dr. King. All right, so he's sitting in for Johnny Carson for a week on The Tonight Show, and because of their friendship, only Harry Belafonte could get Dr. King, he didn't do this, only Mr. B could get Dr. King to sit down for a conversation on The Tonight Show. King flies from Atlanta to New York, he's running late, trying to get to the show, which is live. He lands at the airport, and I'll let Mr. B pick the story up and take it all the way through to the joke that he told opening the show. You take it and remember. You remember this, don't you? Yes, I do. All right. Tell the story. I love it. By the time he went on air, Dr. King had not arrived. So he made quick adjustment to fill his slot and how he would cover the spot. About a quarter of the way into the show, Dr. King showed up so we could go back to plan A. And when he came on air, uh, he didn't give me a chance to do very much but hug him and greet him. And he sat and he said, I must beg your forgiveness for the consternation and the cause of uh, anxiety here. He said, but I have had my own experience. I left Atlanta late. The plane was late. I got to the airport. I got into the cab. The driver recognized me. And he said, what are you doing in town? And I told him that I was late coming to for this broadcast with you. And all he had to hear was that I was late. And uh, that man hit the gas and took me on a drive that uh, was the most nervous experience of my life. He zoomed in and out of traffic, and I had to tap him on the shoulder and said, Sir, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I appreciate your sense of urgency, but uh, I'd rather be known as Martin Luther King late than the late Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> Told brilliantly. King tells that story on The Tonight Show, and the joke killed. And it, it gave people a rare glimpse at a man that you knew up close who was actually rather funny. But it gave me an opportunity to lead into a question that was uh, rebroadcast several times because I asked him, in fact, how did he feel about death? And did he fear for his life? And he took that moment to reveal for the first time before a large American audience that he had come to peace with the idea of death. Dr. King, uh, do you... Do you fear for your life? I'm more concerned about doing a good job, doing something for humanity and what I consider 
the will of God than about longevity. Ultimately, it isn't so important how long you live. The important thing is how well you live. Take me all the way back to when, where, and how you first met Martin King. I was in New York and I got a call. This was in the early 1950s, mm -hmm. mid-1950s. And uh, uh, when I answered the phone, he asked for me and I said I was speaking and he said, uh, this is Martin Luther King, Jr. And I don't know if you know me, but I would welcome the opportunity to chat with you. And I said, well, I think there's hardly any black person in America that doesn't know you, because it was just at the dawning of uh, the Montgomery campaign. But he was coming to New York to speak to the ecumenical community, and he was doing it at Abyssinia Baptist Church. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell was alive there, and he was the pastor. And he said, uh, before or after that, if we could meet for just a few minutes, I'd appreciate it. So I went to hear him speak, and I was quite taken with his oratory. Then we went downstairs into the basement of the church, and what was supposed to have been just about 20 minutes lasted in the vicinity of four hours. And in that time, I had heard a voice and was privileged to enter into uh, a mind that uh, really held great substance and deeply attracted me. And I left that room knowing that I'd be in his service as long as service was required. Now, like many, I thought that our journey would be fairly brief. I had no idea that that simple act of a black woman sitting on a bus and a country preacher emerging from the ranks of a little unknown place would have had such universal consequence. The entire time of his, the rest of his life, uh, there was hardly a day that we didn't speak and have some business to take care of. And take care of business, they did. Belafonte emerged as a strong voice for the civil rights movement. He provided financial backing for SNCC and participated in numerous rallies and protests, including, of course, the March on Washington. But civil rights is just part and parcel of his larger life's work for human rights. In the 80s, he helped organize We Are the World, the anthem for famine relief in Africa that raised millions of dollars and became an international hit with featured vocals by such music greats as Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, Ray Charles, Diana Ross, and the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Mr. B was also involved in the anti-apartheid movement. During our tribute to Nelson Mandela, he shared what made their relationship uniquely different from all the other friendships he'd made during the struggle, and he discussed the special role that he played in Madiba's first visit to the U.S. What makes Mandela so uniquely different? I think it was the fact that of all the people that I have been privileged to serve, Nelson Mandela was the one that I uh, least suspected that I'd ever come to meet personally or to know. I tried several times while he was incarcerated to be given the, the privilege of visiting him, but uh, the apartheid system would not permit that. Uh, I started corresponding with Mr. Mandela while he was in prison. I had come to be aware of him through 
my mentor, and the man whom I most admired, and still do, uh, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson was very close to King Latuli, who was a leader against the apartheid system in the early days of its, of its presence in, in, in South Africa. And Latuli was the first black man to ever receive the Nobel Prize. Looking at South Africa from that prism, I then began to become more aware of what the African National Congress, the ANC, was doing and what its leadership was aspiring to, to make decisions that would help us support the struggle that the peoples of South Africa were experiencing in resisting apartheid. It's one thing to work alongside Dr. King, as you did um, so courageously, but with regard to Mandela, uh, for 27 years, certainly he was behind bars. Um, what do you recall most principally about working alongside one of the stalwart leaders of this movement to end apartheid when he himself, for most of that time, was behind bars? It was, it was a very touching and a very exciting and rewarding experience. Uh, often I went to visit a man by the name of Oliver Tambo, mm -hmm. who had been selected by the leadership of the ANC to lead the ANC during Mandela's incarceration. So for all intent and purpose, Oliver Tambo was the head of the ANC, was the one that uh, was given the power and the authority to give instructions to the rest of us who were in the service of that cause. So that I often heard Mandela's voice very clearly through the things that uh, Oliver Tambo was doing. It became apparent that we were getting closer and closer to the time when Mandela would be, uh, in all probability, freed Many of us looked at that uh, with a great sense of hope that that would be the case. Mm -hmm. But I never thought I had lived long enough to see Mandela released mm -hmm. from prison. When he was released, uh, I was then instructed by the ANC and by Oliver Tambo to help them prepare for uh, Madiba's first visit to the United States. And in that capacity, uh, I was able to not only correspond with Winnie Mandela and with uh, Nelson himself, uh, uh, through through mail, but to also set up uh, uh, the kind of environment that will be most rewarding for his visit to the United States. He came here and uh, I was charged with the responsibility of uh, meeting all the demands that were made upon us for uh, Madiba's visit here. When his memoir, My Song, was published in 2011, he joined us for a conversation. In that conversation, we discussed how poverty defines him, the price he pays for being a man of conscience, that unique voice, and his approach to music. I was born into poverty, and as I said in the book, it was my expectation that I would always know it. Mm -hmm. What I've opted to do is that since I have escaped the harshness of the economic uh, bounds of poverty, I've stayed very connected to it spiritually. Mm -hmm. Because everything that I need to talk about, everything that I need to reveal, to uh, con continually engage and bounce off of, resides in poverty. I'm very familiar with it. Mm -hmm. I find it's easy to be with whether I'm in America or in Africa or in Asia. Wherever I go and find the environment of those who 
or living in poverty and resisting poverty is a place in which I have great comfort. And in that environment, I find great inspiration. Many of the men and women whom I admire as artists, the things they write, the songs they sing, uh -huh. their mission is filled with inspired moments to overcome oppression. I don't find that on Wall Street. I don't find that in Beverly Hills. I don't find that in places where opportunity uh, resides uh, unbridled. And uh, uh, I think the real creative energy and the real juice uh -huh. is in where people are caught in this economic abyss. I'm who I am despite the obstacles that we have all faced based upon race and based upon social and spiritual humiliation. Uh, I am not here because I'm inspired by what great presidents have not done or done as the case may be. I'm here because I come from a, a, sense, a, a sense of struggle, a sense of, of, of using the, the instruments that were given to me to manipulate the environment in which I found myself and joined up with those who were equally as skillful at manipulating that environment as was I. Uh, I th think America offers a dream that cannot be fulfilled as easily anywhere else in the world as it could be fulfilled here. Great men, Dr. Du Bois or Dr. King um, or others, really saw in America opportunity that did not reside quite the same where elsewhere. Opportunity for black people in Africa were really quite different under the colonial oppression that Africans experienced, just as it was quite different for those who grew up in the Caribbean. Although oppression was common to all of us, there were styles of oppression that gave us the opportunity uh -huh. to see the world in dimensions we didn't quite see it growing up in any one place. I think being born in America and growing up exclusively within the American boundaries of race and race oppression is a very different experience for those of us who grew up under the boundaries of race and race experience uh -huh. in the Caribbean or from those who grew up in Africa. If I can change America and change American foreign policy and help get people into office who bring a moral mission as well as a spiritual insight into what they should be doing politically, we sit in a place where the opportunity for change resides in its most uh, powerful sense. The dynamic of what we can do to make change is unlike the dynamic that any place else can boast of. But pushing America in that way, to your mind, makes you a greater patriot or, in the minds of others, an ingrate? I don't dwell too much on the minds of others. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's the Harry uh, Belafonte I know you. <laughs> I went about my life uh, uh, approaching music not from the point of view of a singer, but from the point of view of an actor. That's how I first started to sing. Right. I had a part. It was required that the guy sing. And when I found out how to approach it from the acting point of view, the subtext, all this stuff, and I did it, it was resounding, the, the rewards that came from that practice. So everything I went after in my musical career was really based upon how I approached a song as an actor, mm -hmm. not because of the power of my musical instrument. Right. However, having said that, what I delighted in was the fact that so many people found what I did to be so attractive. And the way to really know more about me as a performer 
would require that you see me in the theater as opposed to hearing me on record. And I think that what you see in the theater is an arc of the experience that is revealed musically that really talks about my life, about the songs that, have, that I've chosen to sing, the protest songs, the songs that embrace other race, the songs in many languages that I sing, not too unlike the influence that Robeson put on me because he sang 22 languages, mm -hmm. wrote and read them and sang in them, and I saw the appreciation from global audiences because he did that. I did the same thing. When I went to Japan, I sang in Japanese. When I went to Greece, I sang in Greek. When I went to Spain, I sang in <laughs> Spanish and uh, couldn't speak it very well, but I sang. I was beautiful in singing it. And these things just constantly attracted people to the uniqueness of who I was and the way in which I performed. As a consequence, that served a political end which was to make me completely independent of the economics in the way in which life was designed for the artist in America. Mm -hmm. We're all deeply dependent on how Wall Street defines us and the banks define us and commodity defines us and what industry says, whether General Motors likes us or Kellogg's Cornflakes likes us, you are equated as an artist based upon the likes and dislikes of those powers. Mm -hmm. And how do you get around them? How do you? So I went directly to people and maintained a people relationship so that no matter what they did to me, with Blacklist and I couldn't get on the air, or for 10 years I couldn't find a movie, I would go to Paris, the theaters were filled. I'd go to Hong Kong, theaters were filled. I'd go to Lagos, theaters were filled. Wherever I went, there was always an audience. And I defied being touched by the instruments of denial that was that was the, the in the powers of the, was in the hands of the power elite. So if a, if, a, if a sponsor didn't like me, I could care less. Uh, what you're asking me to do is to give up what I believe in, which I believe to be not only morally correct, but I think spiritually most most desired, and to give that up in order to be anointed by your product. There's no bargain here. And I said, well, you know, I'll just be who I am. And you voice or no voice. <laughs> Mr. B has used his voice at home and around the world for more than a half a century, always courageously speaking truth. As an artist, his mandate is to show life not as it is, but as it should be. And as a citizen of this country, his mandate is to bring criticism and dissension to the table so that another point of view might be heard. In the political climate that we now find ourselves, I'm reminded of Mr. B's insightful words on this program just one day after Barack Obama was elected president. Well, I think of all the people in this country who have earned the right to celebrate, none have earned that right more than the African-American community. Uh, however, it is not a standalone community. And I think that we have been here before. Uh, when slavery was overthrown, the great civil war, uh, and we went into the post-Civil War period and elected black officials to our Congress and our Senate. It was not too long after that that we introduced a, a hundred years of apartheid, the cruelest and the most oppressive uh, 
segregation system known to the world was, was introduced and, and lingered. Uh, we've had other occasions when, at the end of the Second World War, when we all came back with a great sense of hope for America's future and the fact that we defeated fascism and that white supremacy should have no place in the mix of, uh, of civil society. We went into this period of, of McCarthyism and Emmett Till and all the violence and all of the pain and oppression that evoked the need and the hope for Dr. King who came to serve us. So I think that although we have earned the right to celebrate and we should celebrate, I think we must also understand that we've been here before and now is the time when we're most uh, required to be vigilant, we're most required to stay the course because this thing that we have just achieved could be very, it could, could be easily taken away from us. Mr. Belafonte's words nearly 10 years ago remind us of the importance of staying active, whether it's supporting the next generation of young leaders, campaigning for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries, or serving as honorary co-chair for the Women's March on Washington with Gloria Steinem. At 90, Mr. B continues to lead the charge by example. And so tonight we celebrate not only one of America's greatest entertainers, but one of our most profoundly influential activists and an American hero. Happy birthday, Mr. B. Here's to many more years of art and defiance. Good night from Los Angeles. Thanks for watching and as always, keep the faith. Down the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountain top. I took a trip on a sailing ship and when I reached Jamaica, I made a stop. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. Had to leave a little girl in Kingston. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. I'm Tavis Smiley. We hope you are enjoying this tribute to the now late great Harry Belafonte. In 2017, on the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's memorable Beyond Vietnam speech at the Riverside Church in Manhattan, Harry Belafonte, his dear friend, sat with me for this conversation. He was unapologetic, mm -hmm. but he took great time to try to explain what the history of the Vietnamese... I don't think I ever knew him to be as studious and as focused on what to say as he was in the way in which he researched that speech. And, and, and as you know, a very rare occasion, not just researched it, but a very rare occasion where he took the time to make the case, which meant he had to read that speech. As you know, he was such an expository speaker. But yes. that night, from beginning to end, he had to read it because he had to take the time to make that case that only he could make in that way. Not only to make the case, but to make sure that he didn't miss the points. Exactly. Uh, he was great as an extemporaneous mm -hmm. speaker. In fact, he very rarely spoke from text. Right. He had maybe short notes uh, to keep refreshing him yeah. as he spoke in any given set of uh, conditions and circumstances. But he was a great student of his cause. Right. And therefore, when he blended our domestic strife with the international scene, uh, he found himself in a position that reflected the feelings of a lot of people in the developing world. Uh, uh, his take on Africa, on foreign policy, mm -hmm. on the things that we were doing. He likened our struggle in black America
to be like the struggles of all peoples of color who are seeking to have independence in Africa, in the Caribbean, all throughout Asia. And he felt this automatic alliance, uh, not to the, as a matter of fact, all of it was to the best interests of what America stood for. Mm -hmm. And he thought that he would gain uh, historically the, uh, the upper hand in that debate. I think history has uh, uh, proved him to be correct. No doubt about that. And yet there was a great deal of consternation, and that's putting it mildly, about the fact that Martin had stepped outside of his lane of civil rights and human rights, and they pushed back on him about that. You've received that kind of pushback in your own life. How did, how did he and how have you navigated as black men stepping outside of the box, stepping outside the lane that you have been prescribed? Because Martin was told, you know, ain't nobody asked you about foreign policy. Stick to what we allow you to talk about. But he wouldn't stay in that box. You certainly in your career have not stayed in that box. Speak to me about how you, how you, how you don't stay in the lane that people prescribe for you. Well, to put it in its simplest form, that's not true that we have no right to discuss foreign policy because foreign policy is the reason we are here as an oppressed people. Uh, it was a terrible policy to uh, underwrite the cause of slavery and to become a practitioner of that, uh, that, that failed social act. Uh, we have been living out the ramifications of that, of that foreign policy. Nobody has a right to speak about foreign policy more than do black people. Mm -hmm. Maybe Native Americans do. But I think that Dr. King not only felt uh, uh, inappropriate, but he felt uh, that it was, if he did not do that, then how would he be able to speak to almost any other issue? Since America was in great throes in the struggle with communist ideology, it was in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, we were trying to convince the world that we were the, the nation most to be emulated, mm -hmm. while at the same time you are still lynching and murdering black people in this country as, a, as citizens of this nation. I think Dr. King uh, knew that by stepping into that space, he had put the issue of uh, uh, racial oppression on a much higher plane for debate, because that was the eternal complaint about many, many Africans who had come to befriend our cause. Dr. King, once he came to know people like Nareri, people like uh, Tom Amboya, who came and spent a lot of time with Dr. King, uh, whom he befriended, he learned a lot about African policy. And in looking at our history uh, on the slave portion of that history, uh, with what was going on, he found that nothing much had changed mm. the American attitude towards people who were being brutalized, mostly because of race. Race was not the sole issue, mm -hmm. the greater economic issue, was, which was to enslave that people, but race played a key because we were, we were identified as a group that could be oppressed because of, we, are, we were by nature inferior. Mm. Speaking of race, as I mentioned earlier, as you well know, King advanced the notion of what he called a triple threat in this Beyond Vietnam speech 50 years ago today. That triple threat again being racism, extreme materialism, uh, and, uh, uh, and militarism. I want to read a quote again from this Beyond Vietnam speech he delivered here at the Riverside Church 50 years ago today. 
by Dr. King. And I quote, I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. I wonder if you might say a word about what King was raising then and what we still wrestle with 50 years later, this need for America to undergo a revolution of values. I think what Dr. King understood and imparted those feelings to the rest of us who shared uh, many of his thoughts, if not all, uh, was the fact that until this country really and truly makes the commitment to discuss and to debate race issues as a, as a concept, as a, as a practice in our midst, this country will never be able to heal not only ancient wounds, but will never be able to fulfill what it says is its aim, which has become a great democratic state mm -hmm. open to the voices of all people to express themselves. When you looked at our foreign policy, when you looked at the things that we did, the way in which uh, uh, we supported enemies of freedom, enemies of independence, uh, very rarely did we come to the aid of nations struggling for independence in Africa that voiced a view that was considered to be to the left. If one is to talk about America, and what does our Constitution represent? From, a, from, a, from an intellectual perspective, nothing is more left than what our Constitution states. I mean, I don't know. I know that Jefferson had slaves, and we've been through that dance. But the truth of the matter is that the vision of the forefathers were all issues that we would consider to be uh, extreme leftist mm -hmm. thoughts. All men are created equal, equal pay, mm -hmm. equal rights women's, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we were playing out was seated in, in Dr. King's sense that we are like so many others that are what he called the world revolution because we didn't just stand apart as black Americans, although some of the issues that we faced were specific to us because we still lived inside the belly of the slave. Almost everyone else who had a slave history had freed themselves through violent confrontation and independence. It came through the Caribbean, many countries in Africa, certainly all through Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, when, once those slaves in those environments, historic environments, became independent, they also became whole nations. They, became, they had an identity. They could call themselves Brazilians and Haitians and Jamaicans with a sense of, of history and a sense of the right to exist. Here, we have never been able to, to, to overcome that one fact. When I'm asked what am I, and I say I'm an American, I do not do that without ambivalence. Because I then have to say in quick exchange through the mental uh, gyrations, what am I really? What is an American? And what does it mean to a person of color to be an American under the conditions in which we are forced to defend that title. Uh, it doesn't make sense. And we find ourselves often tripping on the words we speak 
and the things we say because we've never squared that issue. I don't know really and truly uh, uh, what I have expected to do other than what it is that we do, which is to constantly fight for the right to be human. Somebody once said to me that black folk have learned to love America in spite of, not because of. That comes to mind listening to you wrestle with this notion of what it really means to be an American in the skin that you are in. Um, you subscribe to that notion that we've come to love this country in spite of and not because of? I find myself most recently saying the following. Mm -hmm. I am not proud of the idea that America pretends to be something it has yet to achieve because I genuinely believe that we have, as a people, uh, have no identity. When I look at students today uh, who are enjoying the, the fruits of the civil rights movement and certainly the benefits of other past civil strifes, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that uh, the absence of a black voice today that clearly speaks out against what the current leadership in this country under Trump is doing to not only the nation, but very specifically to black interests, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm befuddled by the fact that there isn't a greater protest, a greater presence of black resistance vocal to his uh, to his utterances, to what he says. And uh, this says something about what has happened to us as mm -hmm. people. What happened to the, the, the cause of our struggle? What happened to the things that we fought for so valiantly that are being reversed so brutally by the existing uh, government, by the existing leadership, the reversal on so many things that we again in the civil rights mm -hmm. movement? All that stuff is on a severe attack. Yet there's no rebuttal coming from this community. And when I speak to the community, it does not know what it wants to call itself. It's caught between the ambitions of capitalism and being rich and being all the things that uh, black people usually capitulate to mm -hmm. once they have tasted the essences of what it means to be free. What it means to be free has missed the point. It's not free to be rich. Mm -hmm. It's free to be equal. And uh, we have abandoned that. And in this space, we're still in this struggle that uh, will never square itself until America is ready to debate what it did and what it still does. As many times as you've been on this program, there's never enough time. I could always talk to you for days on end, um, given all the wisdom that you have to share. Let me offer this, though, as the exit question. Fifty years after King gives this Beyond Vietnam speech and talks about the triplets of racism, poverty, and militarism, in your 90th year of living, what's the outlook? What do you see on the horizon for America as it continues to wrestle with this triple threat? Oh, they're not youngsters. When I speak to people like Brian Stevenson, when I speak to people like uh, James Bell, when I speak to a lot of young men and women in the communities of our nation, in the cities, and when I listen to young gang leaders who are in, the, in a transformative period, mm -hmm. they don't want the gang culture anymore. Mm -hmm. They're looking, 
I tell you that our, our countryside is replete with intelligent, bright young men and women who are prepared to step in to become the new Stokely Carmichael's, the new Snick, the new Dr. Uh, there'll never be another Dr. King, but there'll never be another Jesus Christ. But every now and then we get lucky. Uh, <laughs> and there are some in the horizon yeah. that are standing by waiting to step in to this space, which is quite empty at the moment. And every one of us is doing our best to emulate you. So thank you for... You can do better. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you for your grand example, and thank you for being a living epistle of what it means to live a life with courage, conviction, and commitment, and a life of character. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, sir. I listen to you every night. I love you for that. Some nights are better than others. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, get out of here. <laughs> Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. A special thank you to my guys, JD and Miles, and to Kimberly Logan for production of this tribute. The death of Harry Belafonte is too much to touch with words. Hence my decision in this hour to let you hear Harry Belafonte in his own words. That said, I do not believe there's anything I have done, ever done in my life to have earned or deserved the close proximity, the relationship I had with Mr. B for almost 30 years. But I am eternally grateful. Grateful for his wit, his wisdom, his grace, his sense of style, his sense of humor, his charm his charisma, his fight for freedom and justice, his love and service to all of humanity. My friend Connie Rice, who was herself an abiding friend of Mr. B, put it this way, Tavis, I am grateful for the privilege of riding with him on his galactic journey. Touche, Connie. Connie also said to me that Mr. B would see this one-hour tribute to him as a gift. If that is true, this gift is the least we can offer, is our thank you to this giant of a man who made all things better. Harry Belafonte, dead this week at the age of 96. Coconut woman is calling out, and every day you can hear her shout. Coconut woman is calling out, and every day you can hear her shout. Get your coconut water, and it's good for your daughter. Coco got a lot of iron, make you strong like a lion. A lady tell me the other day, no one can take her sweet man away. I asked her what was the mystery. She said, coconut water and a rice curry. You can cook it in a pot. Right away. You can serve it very hot. Every day. Coco got a lot of iron. Voice true. Make you strong like a lion. Coconut woman says you'll agree. Coconut make very nice candy. 
The thing that's best if you're feeling glum is coconut water with a little rum. It could make you very tipsy. In your head. Make you feel like a gypsy. In your bed. Coco got a lot of iron. Very strong. Make you feel like a lion. All day long. <laughs> Coconut woman is calling out, and every day you can hear her shout. Coconut woman is calling out, and every day you can hear her shout. Get your coconut water, man, you should, and it good for your daughter. Very good. Get your coconut candy, nice and sweet. Make you feel very dandy. Head to feet. Coca, coca, KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.